Well, if you forget everything we've said, your life, and God willing, tomorrow we'll talk a little bit about doctrine. I had a few more things to say, but I don't have time to say it. But maybe in the providence of God, we will meet again. But it's a blessing to be with you. Truly converted. Totally committed. Growing in holy character. That is the issue. Our life must reflect the image of our Savior. And we behold in a mirror, this is the mirror, the glory of the Lord. Paul said we're transformed into the same image from one successive stage of Christ-like glory to another so that our wife and our children and our friends can see the difference in our life. We don't just stand up on Sunday and try to preach and think that's it. The real test is Monday to Saturday. And the real test is in your heart, in secret, alone with God. And secondly, in your family, alone with your wife and your children. This part of the world desperately needs to see holy men and godly families. Holy men and godly families. So our responsibility is to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and then to see that transferred into the life of our family. You cannot usually take people any further than you've gone yourself. Now, God occasionally will use a Samson for a season, but we never use the poor example of Old Testament saints as an excuse for our own failures. The standard is not how David lived, how Abraham lived, or how Samson lived. The standard is our Savior and the Word of God regarding its qualifications for leaders in the church. You must be able to say, don't do what I say, only do what I do. Follow me as I follow Christ. Now listen carefully. We talked about the necessity of holiness. Let me give you a brief definition of holiness. Now, the Bible uses the word holiness and sanctification. Usually, holiness would be the, the goal or the, the state or condition, and usually sanctification is the process going toward that goal. You understand what we're saying? And most believe that when the Bible talks about holiness and sanctification, uh, it talks about it in two ways. There's what they call positional holiness or sanctification or progressive, practical holiness and sanctification. Some men don't believe in that distinction, but I believe that is true. What is the basic definition of holy or holiness? You determine the, you determine the definition of a word or a truth by its usage in the Bible. 
So when you start in the Old Testament, listen carefully, the first mention of holiness as to a basic definition, Genesis 2. Uh, the Lord blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. That's the word holy in the Old Testament Hebrew. What does that mean? There was no change uh, uh, in the day. It was still a 24-hour period. But it was consecrated, dedicated, and set apart for a religious purpose. Six days of the week you are to labor. On the seventh day it is to be holy to the Lord. Set apart to intensify his relationship with God. Exodus chapter 2, Moses sees the bush burning on the mountain. He approaches, God says, Moses, Moses. He says, here I am. What did God tell him? Take the shoes off your feet because the place you were standing is holy ground. Now that ground was not morally pure. It was dirt. There was no change in the makeup of the ground. You understand what we're saying? That ground was now set apart as special and dedicated where Moses was going to meet with God. So when we talk about holiness, uh, for example, in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, when it's describing the clothing of the priest and the utensils they used in the temple, they are described as holy. That's not saying they are morally pure. It's not speaking of their condition. That man or those garments, uh, those utensils were set apart for a special purpose. You understand what we're saying? So the first aspect of the idea of holiness has not to do with moral purity alone. That's something separate. It has to do with being set apart, dedicated, or consecrated for a religious purpose. Now here's something interesting, and I don't want you to be confused by what I'm about to say. But in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Canaanite false religion, cult religion, the cult prostitutes were called holy. How could a cult prostitute be called holy? It had nothing to do with their moral purity. You understand what we're saying? It was a common use of the word that that person was set apart for a religious use. In this case, it was a false, wicked religion. So I don't want you to go out of here and say, Brother Andy said prostitutes are holy. <laughs> I want you to understand the basic meaning of the word. It means to be set apart. All Christians are positionally, are definitively set apart. All Christians are positionally, are definitively sanctified. That means they've been set apart. Now, what church in the New Testament gave Paul the most headaches? The Corinthian church. But you know what Paul said about him. Very quickly look at it. You know Corinthians chapter 1. Now, we're talking about a basic definition of holiness. It has to do with a new position and a new condition. A new position set apart, consecrated to God, and a new condition, moral purity. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Jesus Christ. There's the idea they've been set apart. That doesn't mean they were perfect or pure morally, but it means they had been set apart. All Christians are positionally set apart, belonging to God. You've been bought with a price. You're no longer yourself. You are set apart to not just preachers that are called, but all true believers now have been set apart and belong to God. There's another verse in there somewhere. Notice, uh, where is the verse? Such were some of you. Chapter 5, 6, 1 Corinthians. You know the verses. You not know verse 9? The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he mentions all of those that practice unrighteousness. But, verse 11, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. First basic definition of holy uh, does not refer to a change in your moral character or purity. It has to do that you are set apart and belong to God and consecrated and dedicated to Him. You understand what we're saying? All Christians are like that. All Christians have been positionally or definitively set apart, sanctified, and declared to be holy by God, saints by calling. But not all Christians are equally positionally, excuse me, progressively sanctified. Uh, that is not a state or a position. This is a growing condition. You understand what we're saying? But grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we talk about holiness, we talk about conformity to the life of Christ. And when we talk about sanctification, we talk about that process whereby we are more and more conformed to the life of Christ. And that sanctification, as you well know, has two parts. The mortification or the putting to death or putting off the old man and the putting on or being renewed into the new man or the image of Christ. That is a process of sanctification, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow in respect to salvation. So holiness has those two distinct ideas in the Bible. You understand what we're saying? Any questions on a basic definition of positional holiness, dedicated, set apart, consecrated to God, not just preachers, but all believers. And then as a result of the grace of God, we begin to grow and progressively walk. That's sanctification. We slowly, by the grace of God, putting off the old man, mortifying, dealing with sin, confessing our sin, asking God to search our heart, and then asking Him to conform us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Any questions on a basic definition? New position? growing condition. All are equally positionally holy, but not all are equally the same sanctified or practically holy. 
Any questions on that? All right, here's the question. In what areas are to we be holy? What areas? Look quickly at 2 Corinthians. We've said, a, we've said something simply about the necessity of holiness. And we gave you just simply and formally a basic definition of holiness. Both a position and a condition. 2 Corinthians and chapter 7 and verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, and what promises? The promises immediately preceding chapter 6 and verse 16. Quoting the Old Testament, I will dwell among them, will be their God, they shall be my... This, this is the big, great promise of the covenant-keeping God. I will be your God, and you will be my people. All through the Bible, you see that. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate. This is the idea of not just positional holiness, but practical holiness, a separation from sin, not just separation from sin around us. Paul said, when I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, I did not mean the immoral people of the world. If that were the case, you'd have to go out of the world. But when I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people, I meant do not associate with a so-called brother. If he's an immoral man or a fornicator or adulterer or idolater, not even to eat with such a one. And so he's talking here about coming out from the midst of sin and then dealing with sin within. We live in a sinful world around us. We have an active devil against us and he have, we have remaining sin within us. And so we must work hard by the grace of God, motivated by the love of God, empowered by the Spirit of God to cultivate holiness. And I will welcome you, end of verse 17, I'll be a father to you and you should be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now chapter 7, verse 1, therefore, that is on account of these promises. The promises I just mentioned, Paul said, quoting from the Old Testament, beloved, that is there are Christians that are beloved by God and the covenant of God, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement, two areas. What does he say? Body and spirit. Flesh and spirit. He probably indicates outward physical condition and inward mental, emotional, spiritual condition. That is, holiness is to embrace the whole man inwardly and outwardly. Now listen carefully. True holiness begins within. True holiness begins within. The Pharisees had outward morality, but they didn't have inward holiness. Uh, God said, uh, the Bible said, man looks on the outside. God looks at the heart. And so listen carefully. True holiness begins within. And we talk about the nature of man. Most Bible teachers and, and theologians, listen carefully, talk about the inward parts of man, uh, partly from the Bible and partly by convenience. Listen carefully. Man's mind, man's heart, 
man's will and his, his conscience. When we talk about man's inward condition, we talk about how he thinks in his mind, how he feels and loves in his heart, how he chooses with his will, and how he judges his actions by his conscience. The Bible says that you and I are to be holy in all of our inward condition. That is the thoughts of our mind, the affections of our heart, the choices of our will, and our conscience accurately judging our acts properly. Now, we don't have time to look at that in detail, but listen carefully. If you forget everything else, remember, holiness begins within. It begins within. Watch over your heart with all diligence, the proverb says, chapter 4, for out of it flows the issues of life. Jesus said it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, though he's certainly speaking comparatively, certainly things that go against us can defile, but it's what comes out of a man, for from within, out of the heart of man comes all manner of evil. As a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Listen carefully. You've got to guard your mind. That is, we are not to be preoccupied with the thoughts and the thinking and the philosophies of the world. We must study the ways of the world in order to relate to the world, but primarily we are to renew our mind constantly by the washing of the water in the Word. Men, are you living in the Bible? I didn't ask you if you preach the Bible. I didn't ask you if you believe the Bible. Are you living in the Word of God? Do you have a consistent, disciplined habit of Bible reading? Are you reading the Bible? Not just are you studying it to preach, but are you reading it to feed your own soul. That's what Paul told Timothy. You must feed yourself on the words of sound doctrine which you have been hearing in order that you can feed others. Are you growing in your understanding, conviction, and reading of the Word of God? Are you meditating on the Word of God, not just running through it? George Mueller. George Mueller was a famous English person that was wonderfully used by God uh, to preach the gospel and to care for needy children. Interestingly, when George Mueller was about 80 years old, he didn't retire. He went on a worldwide preaching tour. A lot of people don't know that about Mueller. They think about George Mueller caring for little children, and that's wonderful. But he didn't retire. Retirement, he said, was on the other side of the river. And so we're not retiring on this side. George Mueller reportedly read his Bible through 200 times on his knees. He prayed over the Word of God. Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. It'd be like a tree firmly planted 
by rivers of water. It bears his fruit in season. Men, are you reading the Bible? I didn't ask you if you believed it. I didn't ask you preparing messages from it. Are you reading consistently the Word of God? Are you setting aside time to read your Bible to renew your mind? Hear me carefully. We must be holy in our thoughts. No jealousy, no bitterness, no pride, no anger in heart, no evil thoughts toward others in our mind, no exalting ourselves, no comparing ourselves to others. Men, we must walk in humility of mind. We must guard our thoughts. Are you guarding your thoughts? Whatever you put into your eyes usually fills your mind. I hope that you are not like all the young people I see all over the world. The bus station, airport, train station, everywhere. Where is young people's face? The smartphone has made fools of us all. Get your face out of your phone and get it in this book. Time is short. Eternity is coming. James said, not, not many of you be teachers, brethren, for you shall incur a stricter judgment. Hear me, brethren, to whom much is given, much is required. Live in this book. I'm 73, and I begin to realize now, this book is more than I can understand in a thousand lives. What is this? That's a cap on a pen. Go over to the ocean. Dip some water in your cap. Go to the shore. Dump it out. Go back. Another cap. Go to the shore. Dump it out. How long would it take you to empty the ocean? <laughs> this book is an ocean. This is our understanding. Time is short. Live in the Bible. You got one book, one voice. Yes, read good books. Yes, listen carefully. If you don't want to read, you don't need to be in the ministry. If you don't want to read, you don't need to be in the ministry. Your life is reading. 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 Don't be lazy. Read good books. Renewing your mind. Holiness of mind, holiness of heart. That means our affections are set on things above. Our affections are set on Christ. Our affections are set on pure and holy things. Our affections, we should love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. Jonathan Edwards said, heaven is a world of love. And that's certainly true. 
but we must be men that know something of true love in this life. If I ask you to take out a pen and piece of paper and write me a simple definition of love, what would you say? Let me tell you my definition of love. Love is three things. Number one, it's a felt affection of the heart. Number two, it's a volitional commitment of the will. And number three, it's a sacrificial expression of the life. Love is an affection. Love is a commitment. Love is a sacrifice. That means if you love your wife, you've been married to her 40 years, 50 years, and you wake up in the bed one morning, you look over at your wife, and you don't have any feelings for her. Listen carefully, love is a commitment. No matter how I feel, I'm gonna love this woman. My eyes, my heart, my body embraces one woman for all of my life. And I'm committed to that woman. And as a result of that commitment, I will sacrifice myself for her best good. Love is seeking the highest good of the object Love For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And the Holy Spirit pours forth the love of God into our hearts. By this men will know that you are my disciples, not that you have theology way up here, though that's absolutely crucial. But they'll know you're my disciples because you have love one for another. Hear me, brethren. Guard your heart against wrong affections. Guard your heart against wrong attachments. I had a pastor friend of mine years ago. He would preach. And after the service, he'd stand at the door and greet people as they came by. And he wasn't walking close with the Lord. And he wasn't close with his wife. And a pretty young thing came out of the church. And she grabbed him by the hand and looked him right in the eye and said, Pastor, your message was such a blessing to me. <laughs> Six months later, he's in the bed with her. Guard your heart. For out of it flow the issues of life. You got any unmortified affection in your heart? Got any idol in your heart? whether it's yourself, whether it's your possessions, whether it's your ministry. We heard this morning, God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. He'd be pleased to use us, but he doesn't need us. We're nobodies, and we want to make our Savior somebody. Guard your heart. Very quickly, your will. Your will. You must have a broken, submissive will. That is, self-will is gone, not my will, but thy will be done is the cry and the call of everyone that follows the Lord Jesus Christ. We died to our own will. We died to our own desires. We died to our own ambitions. Our will has been conquered by the love of the Savior, and we submit to him because he loved us and because he poured that love into our hearts 
and we want to please Him. We don't want to seek our own will. Sometimes you'll find out if you've ministered 20, 30, 40 years, what you wanted and what God planned for you is not the same thing. Will you accept God's will? If your will is broken, shattered, God will use us. It was uh, Jacob. You remember Jacob in the Old Testament. He was a liar and a deceiver, and he sought his own will, and he always was a trickster, and he was always seeking benefit, and he was doing things the wrong way. But God was sending him back into the land, and he was about to cross the brook to go back into the land, and somebody stopped him. And he wrestled with a man most of the night in his own Jacob's strength. But what did the angel do? He reached out and smote him on the thigh, and he was crippled. And he quit wrestling in his own strength and he began to cling in desperate dependency. And he said, I won't let you go until you bless me. When the sun rose over the creek, when he walked, he walked with a limp. And he walked with a limp the rest of his life. Do you have a limp? Have you been broken? Desperate, broken men. Pray. Desperate, broken men is who God uses. Men, take your will and put it on the altar of God and let the hammer of God's holy love pound it into submission and form it into His will. Your will, men, let us have a holy will. And lastly, quickly, your conscience. The old Puritans said this, a bunch of godly men that lived in England many years ago. They said the conscience is the preacher's greatest friend. The conscience is the preacher's greatest friend. Look in the book of Acts quickly. We're just shooting from the hip here, as they say, out in the West. But we are trying to impress upon us the necessity of inward holiness. What verse did I just say? Did I say a verse? Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, Paul is before Felix, giving a testimony. And they were accusing Paul of many things. But notice Acts 24, verse 13. Acts 24, verse 13, Paul says, nor can they prove to you the charges which they now accuse me of. But, verse 14, I admit this, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything according to the law and written in the prophets. Notice verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now notice verse 16. In view of this, I always do my best to maintain a blameless conscience both before God and man. Now, let me ask you a question. 
What's the relationship between verse 15 and verse 16? There's a relationship between verse 15 and verse 16, and the clue is Paul saying, verse 16, my Bible says, in view of this, or on account of this. What this is he talking about? There's going to be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And Paul said, because I know one day there will be a resurrection of all men that will stand in the presence of God and the books will be open and men will be judged out of the books, the things they have done. Now, for the believer, the things they have done will be the evidence or the proof that they are true Christians. It will not be the basis of their salvation. You understand what we're saying? It will prove that we were believers. But Paul said, I keep a good conscience. I do my best to keep a good conscience before God, in my relationship to God, in my relationship to man. Now, what is the conscience? If it's the preacher's best friend, and God wants us to be holy within and without, in the mind, in the heart, in the will, and the conscience, what's a conscience? The conscience is an inward moral indicator that judges your actions and judges them as to whether they're right or whether they're wrong. If they are right, your conscience commends you. If you are wrong, your conscience condemns you. But listen carefully. If a preacher doesn't keep a good conscience, if his conscience is dull, if his conscience is seared, if his conscience is hardened, he can tell a lie. He can be ugly to his wife. He can neglect his children. He can be impatient in the church. And he is not convicted in his conscience because his conscience has become dull or even seared. Now you burn your skin. What happens? Psst, it hurts. And it hurts for a long time. But after a while, what happens? It becomes hardened and you lose your feeling because the burn has killed your nerves that caused you to feel. And a lot of men's conscience is like that. They go on sinning and they continue in sin and they don't confess their sin. I'm not telling them going out and chasing the prostitutes, but they're insensitive to their wife. They have uh, poor attitudes. They tell a little lie. They're not convicted. And then they do another sin. And if you don't confess your sin, your conscience gets dull. Let me ask you a question. If you went one year and never took the garbage out of your home, what would your house be like? You'd be walking around like this. A lot of men's lives are like that. Their heart is full of garbage because they've not taken out the garbage. Paul, John said, if we confess our sins, why do we confess sins? Because, listen carefully, unconfessed sin doesn't break our union with Christ. It will hinder our communion with Christ. You understand what we're saying? And when a man doesn't confess his sin, that doesn't mean he's lost, but it means that he may lose the joy of salvation. 
He may lose the assurance of his salvation. He may grieve the Holy Spirit. He may go on for a period of time in his own strength, in his own power. David said what? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. When we don't confess our sins, it don't, you don't lose your salvation. You lose the joy of your salvation. He said, take not your Holy Spirit from me. A lot of people say, look, if you sin, you lose your salvation. The Holy Spirit departs from you. But hear me carefully. It's another crucial place where context, Old Testament context regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the lives of prophets, priests, and kings, the Spirit of God came on them and anointed them as kings and prophets and priests. David saw the Spirit of God depart from Saul. That is, God rejected him as king. And so David said, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. He wasn't talking about his salvation. He was talking about his anointing and his position as king. You understand what we're saying? So we must keep a clear conscience, men. We must guard our conscience. When's the last time you confessed sin? Specific sin. You got on your knees out of some conviction and you confessed your sin. When's the last time you confessed your sin to your wife? It's three things almost impossible for a man to say. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You ever said those words to your wife? Our conscience men, our conscience must be sensitive. And you study that word out through the New Testament and ask God to give you a good conscience. You understand what we're saying? Let us cleanse ourselves. It is motivated by the love of Christ. And in that context, though, he says, by the fear of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Let us bring to maturity holiness in the fear of God. Now hear me carefully. There's a slavish, sinful fear of a slave or a servant. John says, perfect love cast out all fear. He that fears has not been perfected in love. And there he's talking about the fear of eternal judgment and punishment. We no longer fear God as a righteous judge. But the Bible also talks about a holy fear of God. A holy fear of God. Look in 2 Corinthians very quickly. I know we're fading fast. Let's see if we can finish here with a fresh burst of attention. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is talking about his ministry and he's talking about motives in ministry. Motives in ministry. Listen carefully. Your motives are very important. When you get to heaven, maybe the first thing God's not going to ask you is what you did. The big question in heaven may be why. 
Why? Listen carefully. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason. That's what Paul said of his enemies. They preached the gospel in Philippians, but they did it for the wrong reasons. So hear me carefully. Motive is very important. Here we have Paul describing some of his motives. Notice down in verse 14, the first foundational motive, though it's mentioned last here, for the love of Christ controls us. And how is that love manifest? We conclude this, that one died for all, therefore all have died. Therefore he died for all, verse 15, so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul said, the love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ motivates me. It is not my love for Christ, as you heard this morning. It's Christ's love for us. Our love for him is so fluctuating up and down. His love for us is unchanging. But notice verse 9. Therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. I invite you to do a study through the New Testament of pleasing God. Now hear me carefully. If you don't understand this distinction, you will find yourself being bounced back and forth like a ball. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Hear me carefully. If you don't understand the difference between God's unconditional covenant love and his fatherly good pleasure, you will be confused in your Christian life. God loves all his children equally, sovereignly, eternally, permanently, and nothing can separate us from that love. But hear me carefully. Sometimes he may not be pleased with us. You got children, some of you. You love them. You love your kids. They have your name. They have your blood. They're yours. They belong to you, given from God. You love them, ought to love them unconditionally. Do they always please you? Here's a couple right up here. Those guys look like they please you all the time. Listen carefully. Study that through the Bible. Now, let me ask you a question. Is God easy to please? You ever thought about that? Is God easy to please? I ask a lot of people that. They usually say, oh, no. He's hard to please. Well, Jesus said, you must be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. I ain't perfect. Listen carefully. The Bible says, like a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that love him. He's mindful of our frame. 
He knows that we are but dust. Let me tell you something. God is easy to please. Let me say that again. God is easy to please. And he's hard to disappoint. And you need to understand that. But you also need to understand. Paul said, this is our ambition, to be pleasing to him. Well, Paul, I thought you already said you were justified, freely forgiven, pardoned from the guilt of all your sins in the covenant with God. He loves you unconditionally. Nothing will separate you from the love. I thought you wrote all that, Paul. Well, I did. What I have is my ambition to be pleasing to him. This God loved me this way. This Savior shed his own blood. The spirit within me, I don't want to grieve. I don't want to disappoint my heavenly father. But hear me carefully. You're first teaching your baby to walk. And you put the baby right here. And you're back here. He said, come, come. Yeah, the baby goes. <laughs> Boom. Falls over. What do you do? You go over there and kick him? Get up from there. <laughs> what do you do? Oh, baby, baby, you get him up. You pick him, you dust him off, you turn him around. Come on, baby, come, baby, come, baby. Oh, look at baby, baby. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those that love him. Now, hear me carefully. God's easy to please. But Paul said, I want as my ambition to be pleasing to him. And one last thought in 2 Corinthians 5. Quickly look at it. We're just surveying Paul's motives. Second Corinthians chapter 5. The love of Christ to please God. But notice what he says, verse 10. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's not a judgment relative to our salvation. Hear me clearly. This is simply a judgment in accounting for our ministry and our faithfulness and our life. All right, look at verse 11. What's the first word in your Bible in verse 11? My English Bible says, therefore. What does that tell you? Whatever he's about to say in verse 11 is directly related to what he just mentioned in verse 10. And what did he just mention in verse 10? We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. A holy love, excuse me, a holy fear is fixed on two things. It's a fear of God's present fatherly discipline and a fear of his future searching judgment. Uh, most preachers don't believe that, but you trace out the fear of God and the judgment of God and you'll see Peter and Paul James and others mention that reality. If we call on God as Father, Peter says, 
who will judge each man impartially according to his works, then let us conduct ourselves with fear. Not the slavish fear of an unconverted servant that sees God as a righteous judge in heaven with a club and every time he sins, he whacks him on the head. But he sees a loving heavenly father that he wants to please. And hear me carefully. I'll say it one more time. God is easy to please. But you can't take advantage of his good pleasure. Let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, inward holiness. Now I see uh, the, the, the outward man is decaying right before my eyes here. But we got to make 10 more minutes. Some of you have given up the ghost. <laughs> Those that are alive and remain, stay with us. Because listen carefully, inward holiness should express itself in outward purity. Now, we don't have time to look at this in detail, but listen carefully. Your eyes, I've made a covenant with my eyes. Your ears, I'll not listen to gossip. Your tongue, I'll not speak a lie. I'll not speak what is unloving. I'll not speak what is not edifying. I'll not speak that which is not profitable. Our eyes, our ear, our tongue, our body, our belly, our physical sexual desires, our feet, our hands belong to Christ. He bought it with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Paul said, I buffet my body. I make it my slave. Lest, having preached to others, I would be rejected. Hear me carefully. Your body is a testimony before the world and to God. And we're to glorify God in our body. And we're to be holy in all our behavior. Whatever we eat, whatever we drink, we do it for the glory of God. And we seek to do it with holy, spirit-empowered, love-motivated self-control. Listen carefully. You need to write this on your heart as a preacher. Others may. I cannot. Did you hear that? Others may. I cannot. I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about the wise, responsible, loving use of legitimate Christian liberties. Others may. I cannot. If you don't want to pay that price, you need to get out of the ministry. If you don't want to pay that price, if you don't want to glorify God in your body, if you don't want to guard your eyes, if you don't want to read, if you don't guard your belly, if you eat only that which is sufficient for you, your life must be a testimony in every area of life so that when people look at you and when they listen to you and when they are around you, 
They sense there's something different about you. Not that you're trying to promote yourself. Paul said, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for your sake. Men, are you guarding your eyes? Do you have your eyes on another woman? Do you have your eyes on forbidden things and the TV and the Internet? Everywhere you look, there's a naked woman at least in America. Guard your eyes. I've made a covenant with my eye. Turn away my eyes from beholding evil. Guard your heart. Let your gaze be right in front of you. Young men especially. The undoing of young men and even old men and old dogs too is pornography. Are you looking at pornography? Is anybody in this room consistently looking at pornography? You need to guard your heart. You need to get on your knees. You need to confess your sin. You need to ask God to help you overcome your weakness. If you've got affections, eyes, hands, or body anywhere near another woman, you need to repent. You need to pray for God's grace to help you. Listen carefully. Money, sex, and power. That's the triumphant influence of the devil on preachers. Money, sex, and power. We're not to live for money. We're to control our passions by the grace of God. Don't let your streams be dispersed abroad. Let them be for you and you only. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. You say, well, she ain't young anymore. <laughs> How can I rejoice in that? Because you understand love is a commitment of the will. A commitment of the will and a sacrifice of the life, not just an emotion of the heart. The emotion is going to come and go. But we love our wife like Christ loved the church. Men, your feet don't go where they should go. Your hands don't lay hold of that which they shouldn't lay hold of. Your ears don't need to be listening to stuff you shouldn't listen to. Guard your eyes from beholding that which is evil. Keep your tongue from speaking guile. Guard your body. It's not yours. It belongs to someone else. He bought it with a price. It is the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And you are to glorify God inwardly and outwardly. Now, I don't know you men. I know some of you. But I love you men. I love all of you. And I'll be praying for you as I pray for myself. A lot of people got right to the end. they fell. You pray for me. And I'll pray for you. That we would continue and run the race. All the way to the end. The necessity of holiness. The definition of holiness. The areas of holiness. Exercise and expressions. Within 
and without. Any questions? If anyone still has life remaining. <laughs> is there any question? I have a question. Yes. Maybe tonight or tomorrow. As we said briefly in passing, gospel obedience, gospel holiness has several characteristics. Multiple motivations, but the primary motivation is the love of Christ and the glory of God. That's the motivation. The power is by the Spirit of God. It is initiated by faith, as we heard this morning, by faith. And it is directed by the word, by law. There's no power in the law in and of itself. That's what Paul was saying in Romans 7. The law alone cannot affect my ability to fight against sin. Power in the flesh also. Right. Then the Bible says, mortified yeah. is of the word in the flesh. So how, how to mortify? Well, he, Paul said, 2 Corinthians 7, let us cleanse ourselves. So sanctification, uh, we are active, as we heard this morning. It doesn't mean we're passive. So we avail ourselves. Here's what we're saying. Christ is in heaven, alive. And there is virtue and power coming forth from him. The sun is in the sky, the physical sun. The, they, they, the scientists say the sun may never burn out because it is constantly creating energy. It gives out energy, but it never loses energy. There's the sun of righteousness at the right hand of God. And there is energy coming forth from him. There is grace, divine enablement coming forth from him by the Holy Spirit down the means of grace. You see this, uh, this light here. How did this light get turned on? Well, there's some wires up there. And those wires go back there. And then the wires go out to the street. And then the wires go to the power plant. Uh, there's no power in the wires. It is just a channel that brings the light. The means of grace are like the wires. How do you get water into your house? Usually by pipes. You understand what we're saying? Pipes. They bring water into your house. Uh, they're not the water. They're just the channel through which the water flows. And the means of grace are both private and public. Private means of grace are the things you do alone. Public means of grace are the things you do with other Christians. You worship God together. You sing together. You pray together. You fellowship together. But the private means of grace are the first foundational thing in the life of the believer. I love my wife. I've been married to her 50-something years. But I don't just see her in public. If I really want to know my wife, I get along. I lock the door. Eyeball to eyeball, heart to heart, soul to soul, body to body. I know in the biblical sense of the word my wife. If you want to know the Savior, He is in heaven, and there is grace flowing. 
let us draw near to the throne of grace that we might see, receive grace to help and strength in our hour of need. Listen carefully. The Buddhist prays, the Muslim prays, the Hindu prays, but their prayer goes no higher than the ceiling. The Christian prays. Hear me carefully. Men that want to grow in holiness, women that want to deepen into conformity to the character of Christ are living in the presence of God. By that I mean they are living on their knees at the throne of grace, asking for grace to help by the power of the Spirit. That doesn't mean then you're waiting for an electric shock or an emotional moment. This morning I was laying in bed. I was tired. I didn't want to get up. My wife is warm. But if I had operated on feelings, I'd still be in bed. But by faith, gospel obedience is initiated by faith. That is, we step out in faith, regardless of how we feel because we know the love of God and we ask for the help of the Spirit of God. Hear me carefully. The secret to the Christian life, and I'm speaking informally here, is to live with God in secret. That's not all. But the question is this, men and ladies, do you pray to God alone? Do you pray to God alone? Jesus taught us to pray in secret. Jesus practiced the habit of secret prayer. Why? Because he loved his heavenly father and because he put himself in a posture of dependency. I do nothing of myself. You go to the movies. I don't ever been to a movie that's in 3D, 3D. When you put on these glasses and you look at the movie and it makes it more uh, something. <laughs> Men that pray, pray in 3D. What do we mean? Desire. Paul said that I may know him. I want to know this person. They had a desire. Number two, desperate. Their self-sufficiency had been crippled and they were desperate. Desperate men pray. Desperate men pray. And number three, discipline. They show up no matter what. Listen carefully. Gospel obedience initiated by faith, motivated primarily by love, empowered by the Spirit, directed by the Word, and its aim is the glory of God and to please our Heavenly Father. Brother, hear me. We got to live in secret. We've got to appropriate the grace of God, and it's at the throne of grace. And listen carefully, though. He says, let us cleanse ourselves. Middle voice. That means you do something. In salvation and justification, we receive. Man is passive. He receives the gift and the grace of God. 
in sanctification, it is by faith and it is by the Spirit. But that doesn't mean we just sit and wait for the angel to come in the morning and pick us out of the bed and take us to the place of prayer and pat us on the back and give us an injection of the Holy Spirit and say, now pray. It doesn't work that way. That doesn't work that way for me. So I say this, yes, we are active in our sanctification, but it is by the power of God, motivated by the love of God, and there's only one primary, primary place to know that power. That's in secret. So let me ask you a question here in closing. Do you pray to God in secret? Because you love him and you need him. Do you pray to God in secret? I didn't ask you if you prayed at church. Pharisees loved to pray on the street corners and the synagogues in order to be seen by men. A man tells me, I love my wife. I love my wife. I love my wife. But he never spends any time with his wife. It's a contradiction. A man says, I love the Savior and I need him. Let me tell you something. Desperate men pray. Live on your knees. When's the last time you got on your knees? Now the Buddhist gets on his knees. The Hindu gets on his knees. The Muslim gets on his knees. Lay down on their face. My Bible says, come, let us worship the Lord. Let us bow down before the Lord our maker. Paul said, for this reason I bow my knee. Daniel, it says, opened the window and continued to pray, bowing down three times as had been the habit he had in the past. <clears throat> Listen carefully. Desperate men pray. I know everybody shakes their hand. Amen. Amen. Do you pray in secret? Because you love this person. A lot of preachers, they don't pray in secret. They don't pray in secret. John Calvin said this, the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of true religion is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of oneself. Hear me carefully. There's an academic intellectual knowledge of God where you can list the attributes of God. And there's an intellectual understanding of the nature of man. Oh, he's spiritually dead. He's totally depraved. He's morally unable and on and on. But hear me carefully. If a man has seen God and seen himself, he must get on his knees. If a man has seen God for who he is and seen himself for who he is, you don't have to tell him to get on his knees. He lives on his knees. Men, hear me carefully. I'll say yet another thing. If you forget everything else that I've said, 
live on your knees. Don't just say amen. Live on your knees. There's a God to know. There's a Savior to love. There's a spirit to experience. There's a law to obey. There's a ministry to be had. Let me carry you carefully. You're not going to get increased holiness by coming to meetings like this. This is important. We can encourage one another. But a friend of mine often asks this question, can you be alone? Can you be alone? I don't mean, you know, you're, you don't have any friends. Can you be alone with God? Everywhere I go to hotels, airports, train stations, noise, noise, noise. Let's cultivate silence and solitude in the presence of God. The Holy Spirit is a sensitive dove. Live on your knees. Brother, I could give you some other foreigner, uh, formulas, but by the grace of God, to be had at the throne of God, in the presence of God, from the Son of God, by the Spirit of God. Not just tomorrow morning, but the next morning and the next morning. Mark 1, early in the morning, a great while before day, Jesus got up, went out to a lonely place, and he was there praying. Now, if you read the context, the day before he had ministry, from early in the morning till midnight that night. But because of his love for his father and his desperate need in his sanctified human nature for his father, he got up. Now, that doesn't mean every morning you're going to get up, but you got to find the best time, the best place, shut your door, get on your knees, and ask God the same thing Moses asked, Lord, show me your glory in the face of your son. I want to worship you in the spirit. Hear me carefully. Holiness is cultivated first and foundationally alone with God. I encourage you. You need to pray, God, if you don't do another thing in my life or another thing in my ministry or another thing at all through me, I want to know you in secret prayer. I want to know you in secret. And I want to love you. My friend, hear me. When you stand in the pulpit and you don't have the power of God, it's a miserable place to be. Spurgeon said, don't ask me what anointing and unction is, but I can tell you when I don't have it. <laughs> Hear me careful. There's only one place to get intensified in fillings of the Spirit of God for ministry. And that's in secret. In secret. Moses went up on the mountain, and when he came down, his face was shining with the glory of God. 
And when people see you in the pulpit or talk to you privately or your interaction, you don't want to be giving them the dead letter. You don't want to be giving them just your own gift. You don't want to be giving them just your own theology. You want to be giving them life. You want to give them truth. You want to bring them into fellowship with God and you can't take them any place you haven't been yourself. John said this, what we've seen, what we've heard, what our hands have handled, this we proclaim to you. They proclaimed fellowship with a living Savior. And he said, I write these things to you might have fellowship with us and with his son, Jesus Christ. Acts 4, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they understood they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they recognized them as what? Having been with Jesus. They didn't recognize them for being educated men. They didn't recognize them for knowing high theology. They recognized them as having been with Jesus. And Peter said, look, I'm not making up cleverly devised tales when I speak to you about the power and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was with him on the mountain. And I heard the voice. I was there. My friend, hear me. Live on your knees. And if necessary, die there. Well, let's pray. Blessed God, help us to speak those things we've seen and heard and known. Help my dear brothers and sisters and help me draw near to you that you might draw near to us. We thank you there's a throne of grace. Now there is a throne of judgment but we'll never stand before you as a righteous judge. We stand before you as a loving father. We have an elder brother, and we want to follow in his footsteps. We want to know you, blessed Savior, and we want to know the kiss of the Spirit in that secret place of prayer. God, if we haven't been there, may we repent. And we've been lazy and sluggish and dependent upon other things. May we repent. Lord, let us pray. If you don't do another thing in our life, meet us in secret. Because if that is true, everything else will come forth. Bless my brothers and sisters. Help us, Lord, that when people see us and sense us, they recognize we've been with our Savior, and they sense the power and anointing of the Spirit of the living God upon our hearts. For we don't want to just only inform men's minds. We want to touch their heart and reach their conscience and their will. Lord, touch our conscience and our will and our heart.
that we might be able to reach others. Thank you for this time this day. Give us some rest to think about these things in the days ahead. And again, if nothing else, meet with us in that blessed place. But we ask in Jesus' name, amen.